Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, where my Bible is open. And I will encourage you to be finding 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, in your Bible. In fact, if you are of the teenage persuasion, a bunch of teenagers right there, a bunch of teenagers in the back, some more teenagers sprinkled throughout the auditorium, you must get a Bible out this morning Turn it to 1 Corinthians 6. Adults and other parental figures, if you're sitting around them, help them get a Bible. Young people of all shapes and sizes and old people of all shapes and sizes, let's be looking at 1 Corinthians 6. I'm real adamant about that today because I want everybody to see that everything that comes out of my mouth for these next few minutes, it is not the opinions or the doctrines of Josh McKibben. This is the Word of God. and We need to be absolutely certain about that today. As everybody's turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I will quickly echo the welcome from earlier. What a delight it is to be here on this wintry Lord's Day morning. Glad to see a little bit of winter weather for a change. I like seeing that. Just what a joy it is to assemble with God's people and people of like precious faith for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying God as we anticipate and look forward to that day when we get to worship and praise God throughout the ages of the ages, throughout all of eternity. You know, one of the things that I look most forward to about heaven is not just the things that will be there, but I very much look forward to the things that won't be there. I look forward in heaven to there being no more pain. look forward to there being no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more dying, no more darkness. But have you also considered that in heaven, there will be no more discussion about certain topics? You ever given that any thought? That in heaven there will be just some things that we will not ever speak of ever again. I'm thinking particularly of the big category of sin. In heaven, we won't ever have to talk about or think about sin ever again. It won't be necessary once we enter into those pearly gates. However, and ironically, if we ever hope to enter into those pearly gates then we have to talk about those things now. No matter how unpleasant, no matter how uncomfortable those things may be, we must speak of them now. Because there are dangers, there are warnings about sin that must be learned, they must be understood, so that we can then overcome sin, and we can be in that place where we will never be affected by it ever again. This morning, I want to talk about sin. This morning I'm announcing that our preaching theme for the year 2017 is on taking sin seriously. For the next 12 months, at least once a month, I will devote this pulpit to the candid and frank and biblical discussion of sin. And I am this morning, I am going to begin that with a bang. This morning I do want to talk with you very candidly about the sin of sexual immorality. Whether we're talking about fornication, or adultery, or homosexuality, or any number of other behaviors and attitudes that we could list on a list called sexual immorality, we are talking this morning about unlawful sexual behavior. And one thing is for sure when you talk about sexual immorality, God has been talking about it and preaching about it for a very long time. He's been talking about it since the very beginning. In the law of Moses, for example, the Israelites were instructed about the dangers and about the penalty of engaging in a sexual relationship in an unlawful way. When Jesus came down the pike and He then gave His covenant, His new law, 
Jesus also warned about destructive sexual behaviors, extending that even to the very thoughts that we think in our mind. And if you and I, if we are going to follow the pattern of Bible study and Bible teaching that God has given us, then we too, we too must talk about sin. We must talk about the sin of sexual immorality. And I know that every preacher in every generation before me, has said the very statement that I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. But it seems to me that sins of this nature are more prevalent, are more rampant, and are more abundant in this day and time than they have ever been at any time before it. You just think about that. Think about why maybe that is. Think about modern technology. Modern technology has enabled us to communicate with people in ways that we never even thought imaginable. Not just to communicate with words and with language, but we can even communicate by pictures and videos. Modern travel has enabled us to go places and be places faster and meet up with people faster than we ever could have before. Modern entertainment, it depicts images and ideas about the sexual relationship through more mediums than ever before. Think about modern medicine. Modern medicine promises more solutions to the negative effects of immoral living than ever before. As a result of all of that, the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality is largely ignored, overlooked, and in some cases it is out and out ridiculed by our sex-crazed society. More and more people today, they're interested in hearing the devil's sermon about sexual immorality And they are eager to put that lesson into practice immediately. But I want to say again, God's message has been clear from the very beginning. This is certainly not a new problem. God's answer to the problem of sexual immorality, it's never changed. From the days of Moses coming down that mountain, to all the way down to the days of Jesus preaching on the side of His mountain, all the way down to this present moment, God's answer to the sin of sexual immorality can be encapsulated in one word. It is the word flee. Flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Paul says flee. Run from it. Separate yourself from it as fast as you possibly can. What the Bible is saying is that if you think that you can somehow live close to immorality, that if you think that somehow you can view immorality, be entertained by immorality, stand right up next to immorality and not get burnt by that fire, you are absolutely fooling yourself. We must flee from it. In fact, that word flee that is used there, It comes from the Greek word fugo. That's where we get our English word fugitive. Who's a fugitive? A fugitive is someone who is running away from his captors. He has escaped his captor and he doesn't want to be caught again. He doesn't want to be bound and be imprisoned again. Let me ask you this then as you think about a fugitive. How does a fugitive behave whenever he or she is fleeing captivity? Does a fugitive camp out in the parking lot down at the police station? Is that what a fugitive does? Does a fugitive have breakfast every morning down at the local donut shop? Boy, that was a really mean and stereotypical thing to say about police officers these days. 
Fugitives don't go to those places. Fugitives don't engage in that kind of activity. And why? Because the fugitive doesn't want to keep close contact with the very thing that he is trying to evade. The very thing that he is trying to get away from. And what I am saying to you this morning, more importantly, what the Scriptures are saying to you this morning, is that we must flee from sexual immorality. And that's not a suggestion. That's not just a good piece of advice. That is God's holy Word. And my task this morning is to help all of us. Yes, the young, but also to help the old as well. My task this morning is to help us to take sin seriously. And I want to do that, first of all, by highlighting three powerful, and in some ways, I'll go ahead and warn you, some uncomfortable truths about sexual immorality. And yes, this is going to be that lesson where you're going to squirm and you're going to fidget and you're going to wish in every possible way Josh would say, let's stand and sing the invitation song. Let's get this over with. But these are three truths that must be stated. They must be proclaimed. Because once we then come to grips with these foundational truths, that's then going to open the door for me to offer for us three key ideas for fleeing sexual immorality. Three practical ideas just right out of the Word of God. But I'll tell you, before I can ever get to that practical stuff, I've got to start with the hard stuff. And so, let's get to it. Truth number one. Truth number one, I need to say very candidly that there is no such thing as safe sex. Now, young people today, they hear just the opposite of that, don't they? Young people today are hearing all about safe sex. I can remember, for me, I can remember being in the 10th grade in biology class. And I remember a woman coming into the classroom, and she was there to give a presentation on safe sex. She was a sex education teacher. And I remember she talked about, she explained what all of these prophylactics and all of these contraceptives, all the things that they do, and how they provide so much safety when you're having sex. And at the end of the class that day, she actually set a box by the door, and in that box were condoms in which she encouraged young people, if you're going to have sex, pick you up some condoms and go out the door with them. That's how you have safe sex. Now I tell you this, I was 15, going on 16 years old at that time, I was pretty naive about a lot of stuff, but I tell you this, I wasn't stupid. I remember leaving class that day and I remember thinking to myself, safe? Safe? Safe from what? Safe from an unwanted pregnancy? Yeah, tell that to the nearly one million teenagers every year who get pregnant out of wedlock. Safe from, from maybe a STD, a sexually transmitted disease? Yeah, tell that to the nearly three million teenagers who get an STD every year in high school. This propaganda about safe sex, that idea really didn't start to catch steam until the early 1980s when the AIDS epidemic was sweeping across the nation. And I'll tell you, that safe sex jargon, it was much a load of garbage back then as it is a load of garbage even today. Because there is no such thing as safe sex. Look with me in Genesis 39, please. In Genesis, the 39th chapter, this is the story of a young man by the name of Joseph. Genesis 39, verse 6 tells us a little bit about Joseph, that Joseph was a handsome young fellow. And while there is certainly nothing wrong with being a handsome young man or being a beautiful young lady, the fact of the matter is, good looks... They can bring with it sometimes some unwanted attention. And that's what happened in the case of Joseph. Look in Genesis 39, look in verse 7. 
The Bible says that after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. You understand what's happening here? Joseph has the opportunity to engage in sexual relations with Potiphar's wife. He has the opportunity to do what virtually every red-blooded male wants to do whenever they're that age. Yet what is interesting to me is that the very next thing that comes out of Joseph's mouth is not, well, Mrs. Potiphar, do you have any protection? That's not what Joseph says. Joseph does not say, well, I'll tell you what, Mrs. Potiphar, I'd sure like to do that. Are you on the pill? That's not what Joseph says. The next thing out of Joseph's mouth, verse 9, is how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, Joseph looked at this situation and he saw it for what it really was. Sin. In fact, I believe that even if Joseph could have been given a 100% money-back guarantee that there would be no unwanted pregnancy, that there would be no sexually transmitted disease, that there would be no chance that Potiphar would ever find out or anybody would ever find out, I am convinced that Joseph would still say no. Why? Because there is no such thing as safe sin. That's what we're talking about here. This isn't about unwanted pregnancies. This isn't about STDs. This is about sin. And there is no such thing as safe sin. Young people, do you understand what I'm saying here? This idea, in fact, of any sin being safe, that is absolutely contradictory. It's like saying, drunkenness is okay as long as you have a designated driver. Shooting up heroin is okay as long as you use a clean needle. Premarital sex is okay as long as you use protection. Listen to me very carefully. That is a lie. That is a lie of the devil. Those words stink with the fires of hell. In fact, look with me in Proverbs the 6th chapter. In Proverbs chapter 6, speaking of fire, the wise man actually uses the illustration of fire to debunk this notion of safe sex. In Proverbs chapter 6, the wise man talks here about sexual immorality. And notice the illustration, the metaphor that he uses. In Proverbs chapter 6, I'm reading here in verse 27. In Proverbs 6 verse 27, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Verse 28, Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Answer, no and no. Verse 29, So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. The Bible is telling us, The Bible is telling us loud and clear that there is no such thing as safe sex. Why? Because there is no such thing as safe sin. It doesn't work. Now, closely connected to that is this second truth. Truth number two. There is no such thing as casual sex. Now, that phrase, casual sex, that's probably not the commonly used lingo of our day and time. More likely, if you hear young people talk about this, they're probably going to use the phrase, hooking up. Hooking up. Let's hook up. And they don't mean, hey, let's meet together and drink coffee one day. No, they mean something much more sinister than that. They mean we're going to have physical intimacy with one another. We're going to be involved in fornication. And that fornication is going to be absolutely free of any romance, 
There's not going to be any pretense of love. There's not going to be any pretense of commitment or any kind of lifelong connection there. We're just going to get together. We're going to fornicate. We're going to hook up. In fact, in an interview that I saw just last week, you may have saw some things on the news about that big women's march that was happening in Washington. I saw an interview with a young lady. She said the following. I'm quoting word for word. She said, for me, being a strong woman means not being ashamed that I like to have sex. And to say that I have to care about every person that I am with, oh, that's just an unreasonable expectation. Let that settle for a moment. To say that I have to care about every person that I am with sexually is an unreasonable expectation. I believe that what that young lady was describing was animalistic mating. Gratifying one's fleshly desires just like some back alley cat where I go from place to place and from various partner to partner. What a contrast that line of thinking is to what the Bible teaches. Are you still there in Proverbs? Just look across on the previous page. Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5. As the wise man is warning here once again about the dangers of sexual immorality, he talks here as well about the joys, the blessings of the sexual relationship in marriage. In Proverbs 5, look in verse 15. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. In that context, the sexual relationship, it means something. It's not just some primal animalistic urge where I don't care about this other person. When I'm done with them, I'm just going to go to the next person. No! Solomon says that the sexual relationship within the bonds of marriage, he says that it brings a man and a woman together. He says it bonds them together. you ever thought about that? The Bible uses a lot of that kind of of imagery and that kind of talk about, about one flesh and the bringing together of a man and a woman. Have you ever thought about why that is? This bonding that takes place within the sexual relationship? Have you ever heard of the hormone oxytocin? Oxytocin is a hormone that creates relationship, creates bonding relationship. It is a hormone that is released in a mother whenever she is nursing her baby. Think about the bond that's created in that moment. And it is as well the hormone that is released in a man and a woman when they are involved in the sexual relationship. That hormone was created by God. And it was created by God so that within marriage, the sexual relationship would create bonding. But of course, whenever we are involved in the sexual relationship outside of marriage... Ah, that bonding thing just gets all messed up. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 again. Go back where we started. 1 Corinthians 6. We began in verse 18, but I need to back up just a couple of verses. Paul talks there about the idea of one flesh. And in this context, he's not talking about the one flesh between a husband and a wife. No. In 1 Corinthians 6, look with me in verse 15. He says there, 1 Corinthians 6, 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined 
bonded to a prostitute. In fact, instead of that word prostitute, you just plug in anybody. Anybody that you're not married to lawfully, you're joined to that person, that that person becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. One flesh. I believe Paul is talking about more than just the sexual act itself. I believe he is talking about the bond that the sexual act creates. In fact, I believe I can show you that in living, vivid detail in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Here's a real life example of this. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, this is the account of Amnon using his half-sister Tamar to gratify his own physical lusts. Amnon ends up sexually assaulting his half-sister Tamar. This is a horrible and awful story. I've referenced this story many times in preaching. I've preached an entire sermon about this chapter before. But if you've ever read 2 Samuel chapter 13, you've probably been puzzled by Tamar's reaction after all of this happens. After Amnon says, get up, get out of here, kick her out of the room, notice Tamar's reaction, notice her response. Verse 16, 2 Samuel 13 verse 16, But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. She doesn't want to go. She wants to stay with him. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and he said, Put this woman out or put this thing out of my presence and bolt the door after her. I've always read that and I've always, I've always kind of scratched my head and wondered about that. This guy, Amnon, he is evil. He is vile. Why in the world does she want to stay with him? This guy's a jerk. This guy is a creep. What in the world is Tamar thinking? I'll tell you what she's thinking. In some, in some perverted way, she feels bonded to him now. As outrageous as that sounds to us, she feels some sense of bonding to this man. Could this explain, could this explain why many young people especially young ladies, feel abandoned and exploited whenever they are used for sex? Could this explain why so many young people have conflicting and confusing feelings and they confuse infatuation and lust for feelings of actual love for another person? Let's be clear. The sexual relationship is not the center of life. It is not the reason for our existence. But make no mistake about it. The sexual relationship is unique. and It is extraordinarily powerful. And that means it is not to be trifled with. It cannot be treated in some kind of haphazard, meaningless, flippant sort of way by engaging in sexual activity with anybody and everybody that I please. There is no such thing as casual Sex, that is a myth. Which leads me to truth number three. And that's maybe the most hard thing to have to say, and that is that there are consequences to sexual sin. Now, when we talk about the sin of sexual immorality, we talk about sin of any kind. We don't want to reason entirely and only from consequences. I believe that there are better reasons to flee from sexual immorality just than the consequences. Like, for example, I think it's better to reason from the standpoint of, I want to obey God. I want to please my Heavenly Father. 
I have self-respect. I'm standing on true convictions. Those are powerful and great reasons to flee from sexual sin. But even as I say that, that does not mean that we're just going to throw consequences out the window and not pay attention to them. No, consequences can still serve as a powerful motivator to do what's right. And we do well to think about that for just a moment. For example, what about the grief that you inflict upon yourself whenever you are involved in sexual immorality? We've alluded already to some of the more obvious illustrations of that. An unwanted pregnancy, a sexually transmitted disease. Those are kind of obvious things. But what about some of the things that maybe we don't always immediately say? What about, what about a damaged reputation? What about when your influence and your name is now being drugged through the mud because of what you've done? What about those hard feelings of regret and remorse? What about the sorrow? Young people, think about this one. What about the sorrow of knowing that you have given something away? Something that is very special, something that is given to you by God, and you have given that away, and you can never have it back. It's gone now. What about that? What about sometimes those lingering thoughts that exist? Maybe we grow up and we get married, and now we're in a relationship, and our marriage, it's not all that it can be or all that it needs to be. Because I continue to have thoughts about past encounters, past sexual relationships, that's now disrupting the relationship that I have with my spouse. What about that? And what about the guilt? What about the guilt that eats away at you? Whenever you try to hide your sin, maybe to hide it from your parents, maybe as a husband or as a wife you've cheated on your spouse, you're trying to hide that from the other individual. Or maybe even worse of all, what about the guilt that eats away at you when you're trying to hide all of that from Almighty God? Look at me in Psalm 32, please. In Psalm 32, this is a psalm of David. You know about David, don't you? There's no way I could preach this lesson and not say something about David. David is the man who looked too long. He looked too long at stuff he shouldn't have been looking at. And as a result, David found himself in a sexual scandal with another man's wife. That man's wife, her name was Bathsheba. She got pregnant. And for at least nine months, maybe even longer... But for at least nine months, David wrestled with guilt and shame and tried to somehow and in some way live with secret sin in his life. Look at how David describes that period of his life. Psalm 32, verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand, talking to God, God, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Who wants that? Who's looking to inflict that upon themselves? Who wants to inflict that kind of pain by doing something that I knowingly brings hurt and pain to my Father in heaven? My Father who who wants to lift me up. That's what the Father wants to do. He wants to lift me up, but because of what I'm doing, I am making Him press down upon me with a heavy hand, David says. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live with how sin makes me feel. I don't want to live with how frightened that makes me. With how burdened it makes me. Draining the very vitality from my soul. That's the idea there, at the end there, verse 4, of being dried up as by the heat of summer. 
That is the kind of grief that sexual immorality brings to oneself. But you know what? When I am sexually immoral, it's not just me that is affected. What about the negative effect that that has on everybody else? What about the negative effects that that has on all of the people around me? My family, my friends, my church family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, society just in general. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, do you remember the tally of people who got hurt because of David's sin? It wasn't just David. David, we just read there in Psalm 32, David said, yeah, I was was really affected and bothered by that. But you know what? It wasn't just David. A whole list of other people were affected by what he did. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, I want to start reading here in verse 10. And I want you, as we're reading here, I want you to just try to count in your mind just how many people suffered because David couldn't control himself. In 2 Samuel 12, read with me beginning in verse 10. 2 Samuel 12 verse 10, this is Nathan the prophet speaking to him. He says, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house... Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, verse 14, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. Some translations put in there that this has brought blasphemy by the enemies of God. He says, Because of that, the child who is born to you shall die. Who got hurt by David's sin? It might actually be easier to just count all the people who didn't get hurt by David's sin. Look at all the people who got hurt by David. This child, verse 14, lost his life. Uriah the Hittite, he already lost his life. There was fighting and division and killing within David's children and David's family for years to come. You read the rest of 2 Samuel and his family is just a mess of just constant infighting and headbutting. The citizens of his kingdom, David says something about that. No doubt they were hurt as well by the sin when that sin became public. And in fact, Nathan indicates there in verse 14 that David's sin, it even had an effect on the enemies of the Lord. Somebody says, how in the world? How in the world does sin affect the enemies of the Lord? I'll tell you how. Because it gives the enemies of the Lord a reason to blaspheme God. How often do we think about that? How often do we think about the far-reaching effects of sin? The ripple effect that our sin has on the people that are around us. Even all the way down to the people who hate God, my immoral living, all that does is it just gives them more incentive to keep on hating God. I don't want to pack that around. I don't want to carry that. I don't want to hurt the people that I love and the people that I am responsible for and cause them grief simply simply for a few fleeting moments of sexual pleasure. There are consequences that we bring As a result of our sin, the way of the transgressor is hard, the wise man says. But we need to understand that those consequences, they're not just limited to the here and the now of life here on this earth. Because thirdly, those consequences, they extend even into eternity. What about the judgment and the wrath of God? 
Just as with all sin, there is a day of reckoning coming. We are familiar, I hope, with passages like Hebrews 13 and verse 4 that says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We know as well about verses like Revelation 21 and verse 8 that says that the sexually immoral, they will be amongst that group of sinners whose portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We know those passages, and we ought to know those passages, and those passages ought to seize us with reverent fear. Can I direct you, though, to a different passage in this connection? Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's a passage that I am convinced doesn't get nearly enough airtime. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes about sexual immorality. I told you already, this stuff is just all over the Bible. It is amazing how much the Bible has to say about this. And we are looking at just a small, tiny portion of it. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes beginning in verse number 3. Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness... Therefore, whosoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Ladies, when you were younger, and a young man would come to your house, and they're there to to pick you up and to take you out on a date, did your daddy ever warn that young man before you left? Did he ever say to that young man, you mess with my girl, I'm going to find you. Your, your daddy ever maybe say that? Gentlemen, did maybe, were you ever on the receiving end of some over, well, very protective father saying that to you as you came to pick up that girl? You mess with my girl, I'll come and find you. Or maybe her brothers will come and find you. Did you hear what Paul just said? It's not enough just to be concerned about daddy or brother coming and finding you. Paul says in verse 6, God's going to come and find you. He says, God is the avenger of people that you mess with sexually. God is the punisher of the sexually immoral person. And I will confess to you that reading that, the older that I have gotten, that description of God absolutely terrifies me to my very core. And it is enough to convince me to never be found on the wrong side of this equation of God's judgment and God's wrath. That consequence, that eternal consequence, it is enough to say that whenever sexual temptation presents itself, that there is one response and one right response only. And that response is to flee, flee sexual immorality. Which brings us then to the practical component of this sermon this morning. We know that we're supposed to flee. We, in fact, we know why we're supposed to flee. But the question before all of us right now is, how? How do we do that? How do we flee from the sin of sexual immorality? 
Well, I want to give you one passage, and I want to break that out into three ideas very quickly. Look with me in Proverbs, the seventh chapter, please. In Proverbs chapter 7, the wise man here, he provides three important keys for fleeing sexual immorality. Three takeaways that make fleeing more than just some kind of abstract concept that we we say and it sounds good. Instead, it'll make fleeing a reality, something that is legit. And the very first of those ideas is this, and that is that I need to flee from personal ignorance. You want to flee from sexual immorality? You need to flee from personal ignorance. In Proverbs chapter 7, look with me there in the first nine verses. In Proverbs chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, the wise man says here, Proverbs 7 verse 1, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked, and through my lattice I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Just stop right there. Do you see the contrast that he set forth here in the first few verses? Here's somebody, the guy who's talking. He knows what he's talking about. He knows the dangers. He understands where where all of this comes from. He understands how this sexual temptation, how it comes about. He understands the things that lead to it. And that knowledge that this wise man has, it is power. And it keeps his path clear. And so he's trying to pass that on to his son. But then, he notices and he observes this ignorant young man. He's walking the streets aimlessly in the middle of the night. Wondering who he might meet on the next corner of the street. That young man does not understand the power of the opposite sex. He does not understand the penalty of sexual immorality. That young man is lacking sense. And unfortunately, fortunately, we sometimes see that even amongst the people of God. Young people especially, lacking sense. This is the young person that says, I don't even know what you're talking about with all this stuff. I'm pure, never engaged in sexual activity. I'm pure. I'm always going to be pure. Everybody's always going to look at me and they're always going to respect me. They're going to respect my decisions. I can just go anywhere. I can do anything. I can be anywhere at any time of the day. And I'm not ever going to get caught in that trap. Ignorance. Ignorance. The devil can smell that a mile away. And he will make you his prey. He will prey on the naivety of young people and old people alike. Don't be foolish. Get some wisdom, the wise man says. Recognize the danger signs. Pay attention to what's going on. And then use that knowledge, number two, to flee from immoral people. You want to flee from sexual immorality? You need to flee from immoral people. Where did we ever get this idea that we can buddy up with people who act immoral, people who talk immoral, people who watch immoral shows, people who tell immoral jokes, people who go to immoral places and think that, oh, that'll never affect me. That'll never rub off on me. That'll never have any influence on me. How many young people, how many young people maybe maybe ever started dating someone 
who had a known history of sexual immorality, and they convinced themselves, oh, I can, I can be with that person, I can date that person, and nothing's ever going to happen. In fact, maybe they even said in their heart of hearts, I'll change them. I'll change them for the better. How many times have we heard that old story? In Proverbs chapter 7, this naive young man who doesn't even understand what he's getting into, he comes across a woman who knows exactly what she is doing. Look at verse 10 now. Behold, the woman she meets him. She is dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him. She kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices today and I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. You see there? Do you see the tactics and the tricks of the immoral person? The immoral person knows how to use three things to their distinct advantage. Number one, they know how to use their clothing to draw attention to themselves. Number two, they know how to use their words to flatter and to entice through compliments and through suggestive language. And then number three, the immoral person knows how to use their touch. The power of touch. And that's what happened to this young man. She saw him. She was dressed in a way that drew his eye, verse 10. She flattered him, verse 15. She seized him, verse 13. And guess what? This boy was done. Right there, from the moment she grabbed him, this boy was done. He hadn't even done it yet, and he's done. Why? Because he had spent his time associating with someone who wanted to sin, and he was deceived. He failed to see what 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, that evil companions corrupt good morals. You want to flee immorality? Maybe one of the first things you could do is start by trimming your friends list. Limit your associations with people who practice and even revel in immorality. I often wonder, talking about Amnon a little bit earlier, I often wonder how differently Amnon's story might have turned out if he didn't, first of all, have a very immoral friend by the name of Jonadab who encouraged him to commit that sin and assault his half-sister. Amnon should have got away from Jonadab. And we need to get away from immoral people. Flee from immoral people. And while we're doing that, number three, we need to be fleeing from compromising environments. You know, sometimes... Sometimes the problem is not that we're with the wrong people. Sometimes the problem is we're actually with the right people. We're with the right person. We're with a person who, who loves God and, and they love you. And they respect the Bible and they respect you. They respect your body. They respect your relationship. If you're married, they respect the relationship that you have with your spouse. But you know what? If you take any two people, you place them in the wrong environment then weaknesses just become immediately apparent. In fact, did you see what that woman did there? When she seized him, verse 10, or verse 13, when she seized him, she did not say, hey, let's go out to the most public place we can find and sit down and talk. It's not what she said. She does not say, hey, let's go down and have a chat with my husband and have a conversation with him. No. In fact, you drop down to verse 19, she says, my husband is gone. He's not at home. And so I want you 
to come to my house. In fact, look what's said about her house. Verse 16, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. Picture this ignorant boy seeing all this stuff and not connecting the dots. Verse 17, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. What does that look like to you? To me, that looks like an environment ripe for sin. And I don't care how strong a man's faith is, he cannot survive in that environment. And I don't care if a teenager has the, you know, the the strongest church family support and they have just the most devoted and faithful parents that teenagers could ever ask for. If you take a boy or you take a girl and you put them in an environment like that, he or she will not even know what happened to them until it is too late. In fact, drop down to verse 22. That's what's described here. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Environments dictate behavior. And that is true not just with teenagers. That is true at every stage of life. And that is why the wise man summarizes all of this in verse 27 by saying, Her house, her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Stay out of those places. Stay away from compromising environments. In fact, what the Bible says as we think about those three ideas in particular, what the Bible is saying essentially is it's saying that we need to flee all things that lead to or promote sexual sin. Whether that's people or places, or even things like movies, the internet, what we absorb in those various mediums. We need to flee those things. And what God's promise is to you is that if you will flee, God's promise is is that He will provide you the way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. And I want you to understand that that promise is not for everybody. That promise is only for the person who is looking to flee. Then God will provide the way of escape. That's a wonderful promise. But it all starts, it all starts with getting serious about sin. It starts with being determined to live lives of holiness and purity before God, even in the midst of an impure world. Let me say a very quick and final word to two distinct groups of people as we get ready to extend the invitation. Number one, first of all, to the young, and even to those who may be older, who have never defiled their bodies with sexual immorality. I want to just say thank you for your choices. Thank you for your commitment to righteousness, to holiness, to purity. And my words this morning, I hope, will encourage you and spur you on to continue to remain pure Because despite what our world says, it can be done. The world says it can't be done. God says it can be done. And then secondly, to anyone here this morning who has fallen prey, who has fallen victim to the sin of sexual immorality, I sure do hope that this lesson has served as a solemn reminder, not only of those eternal consequences, but even as well of the temporal consequences of sin. But you know what? I really would be remiss and I would be incomplete if I just stopped there and gave you all that bad news and didn't tell you the good news. In 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, where we started this morning, in verse 11 of that chapter, 
Paul said that there were some, even at Corinth, who used to be sexually immoral. They used to be fornicators. They used to be adulterers. Paul says, such were some of you. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened there in Corinth was God took humble and repentant sinners and He washed their sins away. He made them pure and He made them whole by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And as wonderful as that was for the Corinthians, that can be true for you as well. That is, if you will humble yourself, if you will repent... That involves fleeing, whether it's from sexual immorality or any sin for that matter. Flee from the world. Come run into God. Turn to Him. Seek Him. And seek His forgiveness. If you're here this morning and your sins have never been washed away in baptism, the water is ready. All things are ready for you to become a Christian this very hour. No matter what you've done. Sexual immorality, it's awful. We've talked about how awful that is this morning, but I'll tell you, there's no sin too awful or too bad. God's grace cannot wipe away and forgive if we will turn to Him. If you are a Christian and there is sin in your life, brother or sister, you need to get that fixed. And I don't imagine that somebody's going to necessarily come forward this morning or we're going to have a whole row full of people up here confessing sin of a sexual nature. Sometimes, sometimes that can be of a very private kind of nature and it doesn't always call for a big public acknowledgement. If that is the case, regardless of what the case is, take care of that. Get that fixed today. Humble yourself before the Father and seek His forgiveness. Start living better. If there's anybody who's ready to respond to the invitation of the Lord, the invitation is open to you right now. Come and take advantage of it while we stand and while we sing.